Hello and welcome. I'm your host Petri, and this show helps you to build your company. In this episode, I talk with entrepreneur Sean Livermore, who was once called a tech genius. He was intrigued by the notion, and this led him to investigate creativity, neuroscience, tech geniuses, and what it takes to become a successful founder in tech. Let's dive in. Hello, Sean. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Petri. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Are there any geniuses? There are. They're out there. But you'll probably never meet one. And if you do, I don't really think it will change your life. Why you say so? Most geniuses are pursuing what they would believe is important, not necessarily what the rest of the world will believe is important. There's a great example, Michael Kearney, great guy. If you're listening, love you. You're awesome. But you know, he's, he's one of the smartest men in the world and he's working on improv comedy, you know, in a, in a Tennessee comedy club. I mean, he's not working on nuclear fusion or solving uh, disease panaceas or pandemics, but you know, not to say he should, he should do what he feels is right. But um, the, the intelligence factor globally and in the tech industry has not been necessarily the, the, the hinge or the linchpin of our society. And their growth and their maturity in tech is really factored into a variety of other aspects of their intellect and, and creative juices. And that's kind of what the book's about. The name of the book is Average Show, and um, there's a subtitle as well. But what actually made you to write the book? I, I think there must be a story behind it. It's just not like you just one day wake up and you then you write a book about average shows, or actually the opposite of those. So what happened? Right. I was consulting for a client, a good friend of mine, and I was on the whiteboard trying to explain something. And he looked over and and just said, Sean, you are a tech genius. And <laughs> kind of stopped me in my tracks because I, uh, you know, you hear these phrases and a little bit cliche, but I did not feel like a tech genius. I, I'm in the tech industry for 20 years. I run a software company called Product Perfect here in Orange County, California. So if you need any software, call me up. Um, but this client was looking at me from the lens of, understanding a complex a complex issue that a non-technical folk would really struggle to grapple with they they don't quite understand how the internet works how software works how hardware works they install a mouse and they're proud of themselves you know this is not a simple thing for clients to deal with the technology industry or anything tech and so it scares them in fact there's commercials on the radio you'll hear that say You know, I can't call the tech guy. That guy hates me. You know, I forget which brand was advertising that. But, you know, non-technical people are amazed by technical people. And friends and family, you know, when you tell them you write code or you work in the tech industry, they just, their eyes get big. And, wow, that's cool. How do you do that? How did you learn that? You know, it looks so complicated. But he called me a tech genius. And he was not referring to my intellect, my intelligence. He was referring to how I was explaining complexity in a technology aspect. And so that feeling that I had in that moment resonated. And I think it, it caused me to then spin quite a bit more. And I, I dug into the topic of, of perception and, um, in the other books I've written in the technical programming language focus, they didn't really cover a topic that anyone could read. And I always wanted to write a book that hit the business shelves and I could walk in the bookstore and pull it off and say, there it is, you know, here's all my ideas. But, you know, so this is kind of 20 years in the making of, of everything I've learned. And it puts it into the very narrow and very focused line of thinking of intellectual capability, creative capability, and the technology industry career. And those three Uh, lines of thinking and, and topics flow together and they, they interweave and they culminate to present a thesis. And the thesis is, is that there is no tech genius. There is no uh, superhuman magic wand, magic dust. You know, yes, you have Elon Musk and yes, you have Steve Jobs and you have our icons, but 
you know, they are North stars. They are not the universe, right? They, they are, they are shining wonderful uh, heroes, but it doesn't mean that you can't shine as well and put yourself in a position to be greatly successful in, in other parts of the tech industry or, or your own little microcosm. So that's kind of where I'm coming from, putting the book together. And you did some research as well, and you went far back in history as well. Uh, the previous episode, we were talking a lot about history. Today, we are not going that much in history, but I think it's fascinating. You have a historical characters there. You're talking about Mozart. You're talking about Winston Churchill. You're talking about uh, Abraham Lincoln. You're talking about a lot of these, even Einstein, mm-hmm. a lot of these geniuses, but You are not the first one in the quest. Uh, there were a few other people be- before you. Can you elaborate a bit and tell the audience, you know, who were the first ones to to do what you're doing now? Mm-hmm. There were a, a few people in the early 1900s who sought out the genius genetic code, and they did um, chapter two. We talk about genius and intelligence and the worship of intelligence and how the tech industry just worships intelligence. Can't get enough of it. You know, they have PhDs at Google that are hiring more PhDs and, and certainly nothing against getting a PhD. But, you know, when you when you elevate and venerate intelligence above all other categories of of, of work and effort and experience, then you're, you become off balance. And so But in the, in the 1900s, you have uh, a couple pursuits. Uh, I won't name them, but chapter two goes into them. And they came back with really empty handed. They said, well, let's look at their genetic code. Let's look at what their father did, their mother did. Let's look at their diet. Let's look at their their focus. You know, were they a farmer, hunter, gatherer? You know, all the way back in history, as far as they could tell. And, uh, you know, kings and princes and nobility and noble blood. Did that have anything to do with it? I mean, really, there was a psychometric an- analysis that you'd throw into Excel if they had Excel back then. And they they really didn't help anyone by all their effort to find this. They, they did find a few very interesting people and, and examples at, that personified abnormality in the brain. And there was some interesting use cases of, of people who had a spike like dro- driven through their, their skull and the brain was affected and it led to some of the early neuroscience activity that that turned into a whole category of medicine but the genius element of it the intelligence element of it uh, you know you can't eat a certain vegetable and become you know brilliant it just doesn't happen and it really doesn't matter it is the the end result of it because the pursuits are all about the layers, the, the standing on the shoulders of giants, as they say. So you would never have the internet unless you had, you know, cabling. You would never have cabling unless you had electricity. And it kind of goes back all the way down through hundreds of years ago to mining, you know, elements out of the ground. And and so um, our humanity, it all, you know, it started as a book about the tech industry and programming and, and tech nerds and how they talk, but it ended up digging back into history of, you know, we looked at Einstein and and one of the best examples of, very entertaining intellectual pursuit moments of Einstein is when he's playing his violin to help him think clearer. That's where we get into some in the book in chapter three about creativity and how we think and and putting our creative juices onto paper and how the slow create framework that myself and a neuroscience uh, professor out of UCLA helped to fashion this, this framework for creative thinking and creative uh, work really is is when you plug it into a system all the organized thinking that you do on a regular basis you plug it into a, an organized system and then you apply a process against that system you end up with achievable measurable outcomes that if you're a, a tech founder or you know a soccer mom or whoever you might be in or around the tech industry you're able to really walk away with tangible results but anyway You have Einstein playing his violin to think more clearly and allow his his brain to do what it does best, but he would listen first to Mozart. And so you have one declared a genius, Mozart, playing in the background uh, on the phonograph or, or whatever technology they had at the time. And you had Einstein listening to that, and he would start playing. And it was almost like through space-time, this genius you know moment was taking place in the airwaves. You can kind of almost magically see it in the air around them. 
you know, and then he would sit down and work on his theory of general relativity. And and in the early 1900s, it was a very amazing moment of of magical wonder. But it really wasn't magical at all. It was a lot of procedure. And, and yes, he was brilliant. And, and uh, Einstein was fascinating to study. They even d- dissected his brain when he died. You know, some guy, amazing story. Some guy came in, a doctor, and found somehow convinced the uh, the family member to sign off on him being able to uh, analyze Einstein, but he didn't realize he was going to cut his br- his skull open and pull his brain out. So he literally took Einstein's brain, put it in bottles in his home office, in a couple of indiscreet bottles, and there it sat for decades. And it's just crazy. <laughs> it's insane. <laughs> Nobody really knows that. People don't talk about it. But I, th- I think there was a couple podcast series on Einstein's brain that you can look up, and it's just some fascinating stuff. But it, when he did all his anal- analysis, and, and of course, even though over the decades they reanalyzed it, they only found that it was slightly different than a normal human brain. There was really nothing. It wasn't grossly massive or, or dense, or you'd think that there'd be extra set of neurons somewhere in there. But you know, we know very little about all that still. So working with the neuroscientists, we began to dig into how the average Joe, hence the title, can really improve their intellectual capacities and the elasticity of the brain, and then applying that to the tech industry and tech careers. And you know, what are some of the best practices that you can that you can do in order to be as optimized as humanly possible with all of your thinking? You know. And I, I think that carries through because I've been through tech stars at business accelerators with my startups. I've, I've raised venture capital funding and, you know, even in small scales for seed funding, it's still a valuable effort. And I've pitched over 120 times. So I know the industry and how it all works. And, you know, founders walk ar- around like professors at the university with their head down and their brain is spinning. You know, they're thinking about all kinds of stuff and they're innovating and they're trying to move their startup forward or you know, maybe if you're trying to learn tech, you're listening to this, you're on the outside of tech and you're trying to get on the inside, you're, you're, you're knocking on the doors, you know, you're trying to learn PHP, Perl, Ruby, C sharp, whatever it might be. And, and keep going. That's what I would tell you. But the, the mental cycles are astounding. The amount of work we're all doing in our brains every single day is astounding. It's, it's, it's alarming. I mean, it keeps us up at night. Right. So, um, Anyway, I just kind of geeked out on the whole book and all the research. We had a research team helping me for 18 months, and uh, there's an enormous amount of information in the book. So what I uh, took from the book is that uh, it's not really about Silicon Valley. It's not really about tech either. It's actually about uh, human history. It's about, you know, humans, how we are creating myths, uh, we are creating stories, We how we're lying to ourselves that, you know, if you are just lazy, you don't want to do the work. And, and you know, this is more easier to believe on some superpowers and super people who are having something exceptional. So you can just... Uh, uh, be on your sofa and eat chips and you don't need to bother with, you know, just working out and doing those things. It's, uh, that's actually the story, isn't it? It's, it's basically just uh, digging off all those fancy things and it's just brute work. And uh, some people have some secrets and it's not the person, it's the secret they have. And uh, the, another thing is that there's a method to that madness. There's there's this process or processes, techniques, and those people know them. And it's just persistence as well. Nobody's mm-hmm. saying that they're not in, uh, you know, intellectually uh, clever and smart people, and some of them are geniuses. But still, the average show can do a lot of things. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think that's the really the big takeaway. Uh, you had six myths. Uh, you were sort of dissecting there as well. Mm-hmm. Do you still re- remember them by heart? Yeah, oh, absolutely. The, the tech genius myth is, is based on six claims, right? So claim number one is that genius is required, that we all, in order to be a tech genius, you have to be intellectually superior. You have to have something in you that is special intellectually where you can do advanced calculus and nobody else can, right? You can write code. I, I think that claim number one, ties to the ability to write software, right? When you say, look, mom, look what I can do. And they look over your shoulder and say, that's great, honey. You know, and you grow up with these uh, golden boy or golden girl 
uh, feelings of specialness. You know, when you enter the tech industry, you touch on and you tap into that nerve once again, because now you can write code that no one else understands and it makes software run on a computer. How magic is that, right? How amazing is that? That's what pulled me in to tech. It, it kicked a dopamine uh, neurotransmitter in my brain and I just loved it. I got hooked. So that's claim number one. Claim number two is that creation, the act of creativity is this sudden and inspired moment, right? It's what Darwin called the sudden bolt from the blue. Eureka, yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and there are some eureka moments. There's certainly the what we call big C creative uh, moments, right? But what we find uh, is that most creativity and most innovation is a little C creative moment. It's that spark that is really more of an ember. You know, it's just flying around in the air and just kind of lands on a, a piece of brush that was ready for it. it but Claim number two is that it's sudden and inspired. Claim three is that... Well, actually, just pausing a bit yeah. here, what I take from the book as well and otherwise is that sort of that heureka moment, uh, it's just actually just a culmination of the work what you've been doing. It's just like that maybe you have the final puzzle piece clicked and then it comes and, and then you realize it. But there's been maybe decades of work before that. Right. It's just been gradual grinding, tiny bits and trials and errors, things which are not working, pattern recognition, a lot of things going in there. And it's just at the culmination of the final thing and when it sort of beautifully, everything comes together. But it's just not that moment. It's just like the one, uh, you know, I don't promil of the, all the work you've done before. Mm -hmm. But that's the only thing you see. Mm -hmm. Or other people say that, hey, this guy just, you know, walks in and does that and it's just like magic and you don't see the rest of the story. Oh, totally. It's that Potter, the famous Potter in the book. And we talk about the flow state, you know, and there's, there's Potters that have been on the wheel for decades and they say, well, the first 10,000 or 20,000 pots, those are really hard. It gets easier after that. And you're like, oh, that's great news, you know. So just wait 17 years until you get to that point and then it, it eases up, you know. But the hands in the clay, you know, getting your your feet. There's another golfer uh, who uh, we talk about who had his feet in the grass when he was like seven, eight years old. He was he was learning in the backwoods of Alabama, and he would dig his toes into the grass. He would feel the wetness of the morning. You know, he grabbed the club, and and as he would grow into his professional career, uh, he got a chance when someone offered it, and somehow he got connected, and and he got a caddy, and they promoted him. And he would dig his fingers back into that grass, you know, and his, his body would feel what it felt for decades. And the fingertips of the developer in tech, you know, those are some very interesting, powerful fingertips. They can do quite a bit. And they're they're already knowing not to click the certain key versus the other. And, and there's this muscle memory that you feel as professional, no matter what you're doing, tech or not, that you cannot fabricate in a quick code camp. You can't do a boot camp and, you know, feel like, oh my God, I'm, I'm going to go out and, you know, win the world. There's a, there's a level of, of rhythm and, and iteration that your body needs physiologically. Something in there has to be checked. A box has to be checked before you'll pass the litmus test for most careers and much more than that for raising money with investors. So there's, there's quite a bit of time involved. You're, you're absolutely right. Niels Bohr, the, the famous uh, Danish physicist and uh, Nobel Prize winner, he once said that an expert is a person who has made all the mistakes that can be made in a very narrow field. And, and that's just hard work, isn't it? It's just like that all the other options are already exhausted. <laughs> yeah, it's hard work. And, and the listener may say, oh, that's bad news. That means I'm screwed. No, the, the work that you're doing, and you know, certainly there's no magic pill, right? And that's uh, obvious. And if you, if you thought there was, I'm sorry to hear, you know, break it to you. But when you invest decades of your life into a, a career, technology, or an industry, and you know that industry, whatever industry it might be, I don't care, agriculture to space tech to, you know, um, horticulture, or, you know, study of squirrel fingernails, like your industry is your industry. And you have the advantage, a narrow, very specific advantage that, that, 99.9% of the rest of the world probably doesn't have, and you should leverage that. That is the fulcrum by which you can advance yourself. And it, upon accepting that challenge, 
your life becomes incredibly more interesting. And with the tech industry, you know, we've seen tech and software eat the world, right? So everything's getting eaten up by SaaS companies in every industry. Nothing's going to be spared, you know, from medicine to, um, I mean, it just, it's endless. And so own it, own it is what I would say. That's yours. Nobody else can do what you can do, right? And that's the secret. You're also telling, well, it's not so much of secret anymore, but the story of Dropbox, because it's quite exceptional. There's so many great things about Dropbox. It's it sort of opened up the whole growth hacking, even the name and the concept of growth hacking came out of Dropbox. And it, it, it's quite a magical box, which they opened for referrals and, and a lot of things. Can you tell just uh, briefly the story and sort of the development? Does it go back even almost like 20 years? You know, personal histories of, you know, the, the main characters in the, in the Dropbox say, story. Oh, well, it's 2020 today. It goes back to 2008. So that's about 12 years. And uh, it taps into claim number three of the tech genius myth, which is that secrets are elusive and that you, you really can't achieve secrets. And the, the story in a brief nutshell is that, uh, Sean Ellis, who I got to sit down with for a couple hours here in Newport Beach, California, for an, a wonderful interview, he told the story of he himself and what he went through and achieved in helping Dropbox achieve their world-changing growth from a couple million in value to over ten billion. I think they were around fourteen billion at the writing of the book in value, and uh, it's a wonderful story. I'll let you get the the deeper version of it in the book but essentially he met with a buddy of his uh, jamie simonoff who founded ring which was bought by microsoft for a billion dollars a few years back you might remember and simonoff was on shark tank and they hey jamie how's it going hey no we're not going to invest and then he comes back and now he's a he's an investor he's a shark himself so it's kind of cool to see that but him uh simonoff and, and ellis are buddies and they met for coffee or a or a bite to eat and they were talking about some of their experiments in the marketing domain and you know ellis is coming from a growth career he had helped uh, uh, three or four other companies go public and and done a fantastic job of developing an experimental culture and putting in place marketing experimentation as a science and developing the rhythms of growth in those companies and so he his reputation precedes him and he's walking into dropbox as a value-added a heavy hitter, hired gun, and they're looking at some of their ads and some of their marketing techniques. And, and Simonoff shares with him a very specific secret, something that he tried that he realized and he coined and codified into a phrase and into a concept. And, and Ellis bookmarked that in his brain. He just kind of stared at the wall for a second and nodded his head like, okay, got it. Came back and waited six months to use it until just the right moment and he dropped it into one of their marketing experiments and it just blew up. I mean, it went from like, Oh, there's a 20%, you know, increase on that one. Oh, that's good, Bobby, keep going. You know, all of a sudden there's a 300% increase and everyone kind of turns heads and looks over and sure enough, the secret worked, you know, it worked. And so they took that one experiment and they AB tested it to death and they came up with a hundred different versions of it. And then they blew it up. I mean, Dropbox just kind of took off from there. And that secret, though, is a great quintessential example of isolating yourself. If, if Ellis would have been isolated, if he would say, I, you know, I know everything. I know what I'm doing. I don't need anybody else. Y'all should listen to me. There's there's danger there. There's That's the surest path to failure. But he continued to collaborate and he invoked his network and and that worked. And the information was proximal, right? And, and the proximity of information is very key for founders and for tech professionals, marketing professionals, innovators. You really want to be proximal. And if you're pulling yourself away from the conversation, I know introverts, I'm one, you know, we love to sit in a corner and read a book and everyone be quiet, but you really do have to carve out your your calendar to, to have that back and forth, uh, but whether over Zoom or, or in person. So it's a, it's a wonderful story. While you were talking with Son, and did you get the impression that it was kind of an accident, the happy coincident that he got the secret? He was not looking for that thing. It just, you know, was dropped to his lap. Simonov was sharing his knowledge and experience, and it just because he said he sort of bookmarked, but there was no 
no sort of a placeholder to put it immediately. It was like, okay, nice thing. I just keep that in my mind. He was not like, hey, I need to do this. Can can you figure out what could we do to in order to you know this thing to happen? I think it was raw material. I think yeah. that you know it it reminds me of another story in the book about Groupon. Uh, but to answer your question first is is was it by accident? Um, partially, I think it could have very well failed. And the experiment might have led to just yet another failed experiment. And they just hit just a dismiss button and start a new one, you know, new campaign. Okay, whatever, you know, and not even think about it. But, but yeah, but the other thing is that if he would have not gotten the secret from Simonov, I'm not sure that, you know, well, I don't, you have more knowledge of the case, uh, but because there was something particular what he had figured out. It was the, if I remember correctly, it was like, both of the parties need to, to gain something. So if you're referring, uh, that's what the Dropbox did. You also gain a bit of more um, disk space. It was not just the, the, the friend you, you're giving. Both of you are getting it. And that was the secret source. And then you needed to tweak and find the sort of the exact right proportions for both parties that it has the optimal value uh, for, for everyone. But... Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, because that wasn't common knowledge at the at the time, and if he, I'm not sure that you know would it has happened the same way if if that piece of knowledge that this is the thing, this is how you should be doing. Because one way, giving referrals the regular way, just you know you give someone something but you're not getting anything. What uh, I, I understood by reading the, in the case that you know that didn't work. It was this magic source which made the difference. Yeah, it was. And they called it the principle of mutual benefit. The idea that party A is benefited, party B is benefited, and the platform by which they are both on is benefited. So it's truly a three-part triangle, and that is spinning in the air. And, and Simonoff was able to grab it out of the ether and put it into words. You know, And I think that's the trick, is when you can observe and you can codify and pull it out of the ether, stick it into a phrase, and then share it with other people, and then have evidence to back it up. You have now found a secret. You have taken information that you digested, that you have observed. Your data becomes transient. It it can be communicated. But the principle of mutual benefit would have been discovered by anybody at some point, right? Someone would have figured this out. And we would have, instead of Dropbox, it would have been some other brand that we would have been using, maybe, you know, a, a newcomer or an established brand, who knows? But but yeah, that was the principle. But it ties into Groupon and, and what Andrew Mason discovered, even predating Dropbox by several years, is the the village mindset that the principle that he discovered that that made Groupon the fastest growing internet company in history at the time, or a fastest growing company in history of all companies, was the village mindset. And the village mindset is the idea and the willingness of other people to participate in my transactions. It led to the sharing economy where we're allowing other strangers to sleep in our bed that investors said, that'll never happen. (laughs) No one's coming to my house and sleeping in my bed. Oh yeah, they are. And it's going to be the biggest hotel in the world now with Airbnb, right? So these principles, these, these beliefs, they're a thesis, they're theories that are easily destroyable. You, You can discount them very, very easily. Your mind discredits it, right? And because you yourself wouldn't be willing to do something. But anyway, Mason took that principle and he was running one company and he pivoted it to to save the company because the investors were kind of unhappy with whatever they were doing at the time with some sort of journalistic endeavor. And he he pivoted and, and, and rarely do pivots ever work scientifically and statistically, but this one worked and boy, did it. Uh, now, Groupon has since languished in you know, the never ending trough of despair, but we hope the best for them and we'll see what happens. But um, these principles, they're out there. And can you figure them out? Can you codify them? Can you put them into a phrase that can be communicated? That's the challenge, right? So that that's a part of this claim number three. And it kind of, the book kind of teaches you how to do that to the best of my ability and, and from the evidence and stories that, that we were able to find. So it ties into claim number four about growth. And that's the Dropbox story, but the growth is magic, that there is this magic dust. Some people seem to feel like there's magic dust out there. And if I don't have the magic dust, you know, and I shouldn't be doing 
tech startups, you know, or I shouldn't even try, right? And so I, I find that to be fascinating because you have people like Elon Musk launching stuff into space. You know, you see him on YouTube with the SpaceX. I love Elon. Well, no, not really, but uh, he's an interesting character to study, at least. Uh, I guess some of his employees say he's not very nice. And I think one day he fired like 700 people. And, you know, there's a lot of articles. You can Google it and take a look and see what the journalistic press has to say about him. But the magic dust that he carries is is widely held as some of the best dust out there, right? So, you know, Bezos and Musk and some of these guys, they just look in one direction and the stock prices move around, right? So. Yeah, that's what we see now. You know, the number one billionaire in the world, Jeff Bezos. But, you know, if you think about it in the early 90s or even in the late 90s, that was not the case. It was just completely different story. If you, if you also look Elon Musk, you know, he, he went through hard times. There were times, you know, Christmas coming and both of his companies are bust. Well, mm. they're technically almost, I, I guess, you know, just almost like going under during the financial crisis, Tesla and, and SpaceX, and he's putting everything in. In, in many cases, there's this other st- side of the story as well. It's how much you're willing to sacrifice. Nothing comes easy usually, and it's it's a lot of dedication. And I, I think that's one of the things which mm-hmm. sets apart those who are really dedicated. They just have sort of like a compulsion to get this thing done. They mm-hmm. really want to see something happening. They are so driven by the whatever the objective is that they just don't give up. Mm, absolutely. I think the determination is, is kind of everyone's secret weapon if you can tap into it. You know, there's so many stories of that. I want to go into all of them. There's, there's these dreamers out there that are fanatical about their industry or their ideas. And if you've ever met someone with an idea, they're like, well, I won't tell you because I'd have to have you sign an NDA. And, you know, and, you know, investors just kind of roll their eyes, right? And the first day of Techstars, when I went in this uh, tech startup accelerator out there, many are familiar with, the first thing that we heard was your idea is worthless. worthless. That's not the nicest thing to hear. No. <laughs> no, if you're an idea person, that's the last thing you want to hear, right? Is <laughs> I, What are you talking about? My ideas are amazing. If you only knew, if you only knew my brilliance, right? And I just kind of took that and I was like, oh man, that hurt. And then he said, but you, you're interesting to us. And and it kind of lit a little bit of a, okay, well, that helps. You know, it's like a kick in the butt and a pat on the back, you know, and then a warm hug, you know. It reset your thinking because execution truly is everything. And how do you execute? How do you build? How do you f- formulate and, and create? And what is the process by which you go to create value for customers? If you can define and improve and are you, are you flexible and moldable and willing to stretch, bend, and, and evolve as a founder, as an innovator, you can position yourself in the right room with the right people and proximity again to overcome whatever it might have been like a financial deficit or any sort of you know team deficit or knowledge gap or uh, proximity or awareness deficit. They can fill in gaps with you and move you beyond the layers of and the plateaus that you're stuck at. But I really do believe that the determination within me at least has brought me, you know, and when I raised six rounds of funding in a row for my startup, uh, failing startup each time, I was somehow, and I'm most proud of that because how do you convince investors to invest their boat money, their retirement, you know, their, their vacation money, the seed stage is very difficult to raise money for. In fact, many would believe that round A of funding, round B of funding and the tens of millions, much easier to raise that money, right? Because you already have some sort of traction, you're already moving forward, but seed money, oh my God, good luck. That's very difficult. It's almost formulaic too. You have to have the recipe just right to get their attention. But I do think that the long-term staking it out, climbing that mountain, you know, tackling Everest in, in little bits and bites, biting the elephant off one bite at a time, you know, does take years of your life to, to soak into something. Are there any stories left out? Something you think was fascinating, but for some reason didn't go to the book? Anything you can tell which is not between the covers? 
I think the idea of the great crossover, you know, the nerds telling stories in chapter nine, we talk about showmanship and how to communicate. And most of the time, all the folks that I've met that are amazing software developers, they are horrible communicators. In fact, uh, I myself am a recovering software developer. <laughs> so even to be able to string together 10 words that make sense, it's taken me a lifetime. And, you know, communication is truly the number one reason that anyone gets hired. And uh, your soft skills are truly more important, 10 to 1 than your hard skills. I don't care how great of a programmer you are. If you don't know how to speak to anybody, they don't want to work with you, right? So the development versus communicative capabilities, it's I call it the great crossover because you're, you're crossing a chasm. You're saying no to, to what traditional science tells us there's this left and right side of the brain, and that's been hotly debated. You know, some neuroscientists say, ah, ignore all that. It's really all over the place. But let's just take, for example, the, the idea of a left brainer, this logical thinker, right? And then the right brainer, the creative mind, the, the artsy folks, right? So developers, if you ask them to build a website, what do they say? Well, I can build a back end. I like to focus on the back end. I'm not much of a design person. Yeah, the design guys, the creative weirdos, they're over there, you know, <laughs> they point to the other side of the of the company. And, you know, the design people, they say, well, I don't know how it all works, but I'm really good in Photoshop and I can master the color palette, you know. That's not really all true, is it, right? So the, the technical folks, they're some of the most creative people you ever meet they they can get into the code and, and invert paradigms like no one else can. I mean, programming is the ultimate extensible model. You can do literally anything with code. And to be able to learn that and develop that and morph that into something that can somehow produce value for a customer is amazing, right? And then become more efficient. But communicating and taking all the science of that and turning into palatable words that can be digested by another human being, which has no idea how code works. Well, that's truly an art form. And so the ability of, of, of Demosthenes back in 300, 400 BC, this uh, Athenian senator who could not speak, he would stutter. He had multiple different problems, speech impediments and so forth, but he put rocks in his mouth and the story is widely retold. But he began to figure out how to self-correct, right? And so he dug a cave and he took his light down there and he didn't shaved his beard and his head halfway off. So he couldn't come out until he forced himself to learn how to speak. And once he learned how to speak, he, he reinvented himself, went back on the stage, created masterful uh, prepared works. In fact, he only spoke from a prepared set of documents. He would never speak on the cuff. In fact, a great example is they would shout his name a thousand grown adult shouting your name to come to the platform and defend yourself or to speak on a topic. And uh, he refused only if it was written only in his way, in his little weird world, would he produce the perfect jewel of, of spoken ideas. And, and I love the story of Demosthenes. It gets even deeper than that, but the limitation of battles, <laughs> right? Yeah. Pick him very carefully, but his limitations were inverted. And so now instead of him being, at the behest of the crowd, he, he just kind of controlled it. He flipped it on its head. And I really believe that. And that's why we created, I created the, the, uh, sustainable mystique concept, this triad of communication that if you follow the sustainable mystique triad, anyone, I don't care how left brainer you are, classically speaking, anyone can learn how to communicate. They can learn how to put their words into a very narrow and very focused uh, groove and push the inflections and push the, the the belief systems, the patterns, the details, the secrets, all the subject matter of their craft through that paradigm. And out the other side comes fascination. The audience looks at you and says, wow, <laughs> this guy, this gal, how did she do that? How did they do that? I am intrigued by what you have to say. And I'd like to schedule a follow-up meeting with you, right? So check out chapter 10, chapter nine talks about how to speak and how to reposition your thinking toward the notion of generating fascination. But that's probably the most, uh, I would say, valuable takeaway other than chapter three, slow, slow, great framework. There's a lot there. It sounded like for a moment that you were telling or explaining, well, this is how you become a tech genius. <laughs> yeah, it kind of is. And, and that's kind of the, I think the way the book kind of felt when I, when I started the book, there was this, desire to disprove it 
say, oh, I'll show them, right? And halfway through, I realized, no, 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 that's not right. It's really, I'll show them. It's an inverted of that. And I'm twisting my hand in the air right now, if you can see me. This idea that you you start up by saying, Elon Musk is not special. I can be Elon Musk. And then you disprove that and say, no, Elon Musk is special. He's done some great things. You know, Jeff Bezos is very special. They do have something more. What Thomas Carlyle in 1840, the Scottish philosopher that we opened the book in chapter one with, he talks about this great man theory, right? This great man with something more. Who are these people? These noblemen, these, these princes, why do we try to crown kings? Why do we adore and worship humanity, right? Why does that happen? It's because everyone wants the great man with something more. Everyone wants to worship another human. And that's just kind of how we're, we're, we're hardwired. But the reality is you can be the tech genius. You can twist the, the paradigm and you can, quote, become the myth, right? And so it's all over the website. We, we, I use that phrase, become the myth, because it's, it's the truth that you can, you know, and I know that I speak with ignorance of your scenario of whoever's listening is, you know, you don't know me and what I've been through or what I'm dealing with in my adversity levels. And, and, uh, certainly if you're in dirt floor and you don't have internet access, you don't have access to education. Well, that is different. And, and there's some pyramid of needs that we need to address there first and get you help. But as you develop in your career across the world, uh, just found out this morning, the book's going to be translated to Chinese and someone picked up the right. So excited about that. Wow. Hopefully Congrats. India. Yeah. Thanks. We, we hit the best sellers list on Amazon for the first weekend and hope to hit, hit that again soon. But, you know, I think people resonate with this idea of becoming that myth of being that tech genius of twisting that paradigm. And, and if there is any formulaic answers, then what are they, you know, let's, let's dig into that and, and practice those rhythms and in up our game. And that applies to anyone in or around the tech industry, meaning if you're already developing for 20 years, great. If you haven't written one line of code, great. You know, both categories of, of people can up their game. They can Im improve. And you also mentioned that this theory of someone who said that there's like a big C and a small or was it tiny C? But the idea that uh, creativity, that, uh, you know, we already spoke about that uh, one uh, great moment where everything sort of becomes clear. But uh, in reality, creativity is just something which is really mundane. It's just what happens every day and it's these tiny things and everybody is creative. It's, it's so normal, it's so average that, you know, we should not even talk about it. Well, it's additive, right? So the, the building of thesis and theories and hypothesis in the, in the creative process itself was something that uh, Graham Wallace in 1949 and prior had developed this, this replicable pattern of creativity. And his four steps come together and those turned into something else called thought fluidity. And another gentleman called it the nagging pull, this nagging pull, this pebble in your shoe. What is it? What am I trying to figure out? What am I doing? What's left? What's the unsolved? And that is a small C moment. Th those, those firing of neurons, they're additive. They continue to compile and, and build up until the composition of the idea is more readily available to your prescient thought process, right? So it's, it starts subconsciously and then it builds and it, you know, working with our neuroscientists out of UCLA, we put together this model that then helps to foster pulling out of your subconscious, the small moments, putting them out onto paper or onto digital PDF and, and being able to very rapidly, very quickly recall to memory where it was, where you were stuck on last, what you needed to change, what, what the other element was in the formula and then fashion it up and put a bow on it you know, and, and make it something that can be spoken out of a mouth and that, that others can truly understand. But, but the Eureka moments are few and far between, and I wouldn't go looking for them. It's, it's uh, like uh, kind of like the search for secrets, you know, they, they're additive and they compile and they build up over time, but it, in the subject matter, you got to have your hands deep in that subject matter, continuing to crunch through your patterns, details, and secrets and be organized. And I think one of the things I've noticed, which this is actually 
a huge tragedy in our industry. Everyone is so freaking disorganized. They're so darn smart. But you ask them, hey, uh, where'd that one idea that you had go? Oh, I, oh yeah, I forgot about that. You know, and, Or, hey, did you develop that? Did you put a business plan together? No, uh, well, whatever. You know, the business model canvas that's out there where you can plot out a business model. Most people can't even get themselves to take the time to organize their thoughts for the day, right? And, and calendars and so forth. So that's why that slow create framework, I think, really has legs because it it truly organizes all of your ideas into canvases. And then those canvases stack up into a pipeline and then you crunch through that pipeline and you never forget anything. So... And in the middle of the canvas, so it's not exactly in the middle, but I think uh, somehow I put it in the kind of center is the ladder, mm-hmm. the mindless part, mm-hmm. which is the work, isn't it? Yeah, we call it the mindless work ladder. And so that L-A-D-D-E-R is an acronym. You know, you let go of the details of the subject matter of the problem domain for the L. You Playing the violin. And that, that, what Einstein did wasn't that actually his method of doing this. Playing the violin. Yep, it's stepping down that ladder, and and his violin work activated what's called the default mode network in your brain. So most of the time, when we're walking around making decisions on a daily basis, we use what's called the ECN, the Executive Control Network. And so we're saying, hey, should I pay this bill or that bill? Should I eat a burrito or a hamburger or a salad? And these decisions are trading off future versus present. There's a lot of factors that are going on. But the ECN is is firing. And, and scientists used to think, well, that must be where all the energy is being used by your brain. And that must be all where all the activity is happening. Well, actually, when that shuts off and you start daydreaming, what they, the default mode network fires on. And it's this, this binary switch on, off, on, off. So when one is off, the other is on and so forth. And they keep... Um, handing it off, passing the baton back to each other. And the default mode network consumes 60 to 80% of all the brain's energy of, of, of that detectable pattern, at least. And so we know that that's happening. We know that when we daydream, we figure it out. We're staring off into space, right? And there are plenty of innovators and, and even professors, as I described earlier, walking around with their head down, you know, what are they doing? Well, they're They're crunching data, man. They're a server farm, right? They're just crunching through algorithms, <laughs> figuring out, you know, uh, why should I do this or that or the other thing and how to solve the math problem or how to restructure the business or, you know, whether whatever the subject matter is, it's the clay is still being pushed. A thumb is going in, a finger is going in. There's all this morphing and modeling in their mind that then eventually gets brought over to the other side as the baton is passed. But That's the L is let go. A is antenna. You become an antenna. Uh, D, D is the drift and daydream. E is to emerge. And R is to recharacterize the problem. So as you emerge back from that mindless work moment, you then have a better purview, a better perspective of the problem domain. And you can recharacterize and, and address the unsolved. And so this This ladder becomes especially helpful when you're in the shower, you know, you, you just kind of daydream, you're thinking about stuff when you're taking a walk, a quiet walk, perhaps, or doing the dishes or sorting numbers, sorting laundry, anything where you start drifting, that's a mindless work. And the advantage you have is to take take a moment to bait the hook, as they say, when a fisherman, before they throw the hook into the water and this fishing hook, I didn't invent that analogy that's been around, but You know, you put something on the hook, you throw it in, and you just kind of sit around and wait. What's happening? Well, your mind is kind of feeding off that. They're, it's nibbling, right? It's this fish, and the ideas are kind of just swirling around. It's just kind of this beautiful analogy of the subconscious activity. And sometimes you get a nibble. Sometimes you you feel that that tug, and that's where that mindless work ladder comes in handy and and you plot it onto the canvas and the slow crate framework and you're able to document, you know, oh, you know what? I think I got a nibble. Let me write it down. And you have that at your cubicle or at your desk at home and, and you work through your creative juices in a systematic way. I'm just thinking that probably one of the reasons why people are, like you said, so disorganized or they don't put these things down or develop them further is that because that switch is always on. You don't 
sort of idol you put on the Spotify or you you always sort of active mode and you need to be like bored, completely distracted in a sense that you don't get any stimuli because that's what it's needed when you're folding the laundry or you just paying bills, you know, you don't really, you know, put your uh, mental power in there. But those moments, it doesn't happen that often. It's the same thing when you when you're the CEO of a company, how much time you have for thinking, those walks and, and those moments where you can, you know, go down the ladder. That's what it takes. Did I it, think it's it? so important. Yeah. So important, so critical. A lot of CEOs have carved off their whole mornings to think, you know, and, and they don't answer email until the afternoon or they don't do the, the heavy lifting. They want to use their mornings where their brain is, at its optimal state, arguably, you know, with all the toxins drained from the night's sleep and you wake up, you get your fresh coffee. If you're a coffee fanatic and you feel good about life again and the serotonin levels, I, I've read some scientific journals that talk about serotonin levels being uh, more balanced in the morning and they, they degrade as the evening progresses. So, you know, no offense to late night workers. I mean, Hey, it works for you. That's wonderful. But Scientifically speaking, the mornings where a lot of, of really wonderful brain activity can happen. And I do think it's critical to take that mental health walk. And we, we all say that phrase, especially in the era of COVID, you know, we're all working from homes. It's, it's so critical to keep that mental health balance, of course, obviously, but in creative aspects and, and from the perspective of innovation, if you're not allowing your mind to reset, recharge, level off, uh, you're missing out. You're missing out on the great capacity that you carry with you. You know, I think Edison, Thomas Edison said it best, that the chief function of the body is to carry the brain around. You know, our brains are, are just so powerful. And I sometimes walk around as a programmer would, you know, interacting with the physical realms as if it's some sort of friction environment. You know, I have to wash my hands. I have to get up. Oh, geez, my body needs attention. I need to, you know, take a shower or whatnot. If food and so forth, what a, what a lame paradigm that is, right? If it only worked like software where you just kind of click a button and then a billion things can happen and code just runs silently like magic, right? Like our bodies are the ultimate opposite. They, they need so much. And yet, if we take care of our brains, chiefly, we can run like software. We can be as optimized as possible. And I, I cannot understate the power of that as an innovator, as a startup founder or anyone in tech, you're, you're responsible to care for your brain. And if you're, if you're not doing it, you're missing out on, on hitting that plateau of optimum, optimal capacity, right? There's so much neuroscience, history, and other stuff in the book. So what's next? What's next for me? What's next for the book? What's yeah. next for humanity? Yeah. Did, did, it, did it invoke uh, some other curiosity, interests, and questions you want to sort of new rabbit holes to go into? Yeah, I'm getting a lot of interest in the slow create framework. So I, I think we'll probably do a book on that. The publisher says uh, they might have some interest there and, and put it into another round of effort on it formalizing that, creating a course on that. Uh, you can check out slowcreate.com. And um, by the time you hear this, there it might just redirect you somewhere, but something will happen there, I think. And I really believe that there's a few startups still in me, and, and I'm probably going to be looking into some of the curiosities that I've been toying with over the years and see if I can develop that and, and continue my craft personally. But Writing is, is, is a wonderful outlet and it's a great use of my mind. And so I'm, I'm looking to continue that pursuit, but not sure. We'll see. So you have some secrets. <laughs> I suppose so. <laughs> Come on. You just say that, you know, it's so important for introverts to talk to other people. You know, now is your chance. Tell us, your, you know, see your secrets. Tell us the secrets. Yeah. I wish they were that amazing. Well, we don't care. Just spill them out. Um, <laughs> how to get a toddler, how to get my two-year-old to go to sleep at, on time. That would be, there's a rhythm there. There's a pattern. I'll share that in my next book. What is your favorite word? 
you know, I think story, if it comes to intellectual pursuits, I think the word story, because it changes everything, you know, when, when we learn how to tell stories and cross the chasm, I think that ties into leadership conversations, management, leadership, but story is powerful. What is your least favorite word? I, I don't really think I have one. <laughs> I don't know. What turns you on creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? I think the introduction of new paradigms that I had not heard before, uh, intellectual stimulation where someone says they discovered that gravitational waves may be more detectable than previously thought. You know, I'm like, oh, really? You know, go down a YouTube rabbit hole with that. But, you know, whenever scientists are saying something new has entered the, the scientific domain, I want to know about that and why that matters and what that's going to mean for the world. I think that ties into inflections and what uh, venture capitalist Mike Maples describes as four types of inflections that we talk about in the book. But the ability to see the future, that's really fascinating. And how do you see the future? If, if you could, you know, look at who raised money in the last 10 years and what they were able to do, the, a lot of the folks that did it and that grew into unicorns, they were usually able to get out of their time machine at just the right moment and tell the investor what the future's like. And, and Mike Maples calls those guys seers. They can see. And getting a hold of one of those, putting them in your portfolio, that's their number one priority as an investor. And so how do I become a seer? Well, you have to really know what you're doing in a specific category. You can't master all things, although some would argue the generalist, specialist kind of paradigm, right? Back and forth there. But I really err on the side of caution of, of specialism and, and knowing my subject matter better than anybody else. And I think um, that's what really fascinates me is when that new information hits the market. What turns you off? Um, you know, I, I think traditional business that is ignorant of, of change and um, working with some of my clients as a consultant, as a software innovator, you know, I, I try to suppress any sort of gag reflex when they start talking about their legacy software because that's why I exist is to convert those legacy systems into brand new web-based systems. So again, if you're out there, Google me, look us up. Product Perfect is the name of our firm. But I think the touch point of a, of a business in its technology footprint is very critical and, and it drives the overall success of the organization. So, you know, having an openness to innovation and, and moving the company forward is really critical and when they don't uh eh, you know it's unfortunate for them what is your favorite curse word you know i <laughs> i don't really curse so um yeah i noticed yeah. Uh, we say a I, secret as well <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know i'm a christian and i just try to try to leave a live a squeaky clean life as much as i can as a follower of jesus but i i you know certainly i'm not judging anyone who does and i'll say oops or I'll say damn once in a while. Is that is that naughty? I don't know. <laughs> What sound or noise do you love? Uh, the sound of my children. What sound or noise do you hate? The sound of my children. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, the the other people's babies when they're when they're not well disciplined. My own kids. Oh, it's fine. I know what they're upset about. But when somebody else's kid in the supermarket screaming. Um, I just assume the worst about their kids, right? So I know I'm not alone out there. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Uh, I think writing, yeah. Software development and software architecture is my my uh, go-to, but uh, writing is probably second. What profession would you not like to do? Mm, sanitation. If you could be a co-founder of any startup in any era, which one would you choose? Mm, tough one. Uh, yeah, there's so many good ones. There's a lot of great companies out there. I hesitate to say Google, but I was getting started in tech in 1999, 2000, right when Google was kind of being formed. And I got letters from Stanford. I could have gone. I could have been rubbing shoulders with Larry and Sergey. Who knows? But uh, probably wouldn't be ready for them. But 
I think transforming Google from a PhD academia focused organization, being a part of the DNA of that and turning it into more of a very laser focused um, culture that serves the enterprise a little more directly. Just my two cents. Any final words for the audience? Check out the book, AverageJoeTechGenius.com. Appreciate your support, and uh, thanks for reading it. I think you'll you'll hopefully learn something. There's a hundred thousand words about this topic, so I'm I'm hoping someone out there learns something and hit me up online, um, Twitter Shawnee Pants and uh, AverageJoeTechGenius.com. So thank you. Thank you, Average Sean. <laughs> Average Sean. I'll take that. Average is not bad. I, uh, we're all on a journey from average to genius. That's it's the way I frame it. We're all on that journey. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed. Would you be interested to have some live sessions with the show guests or ask questions after the episodes? Send me your feedback and thoughts. Till next time.